are a lot of things in life that I don't take too seriously. Sometimes I joke around a little bit too much, too often. I see at least one person with whom I live who's shaking her head yes at me. But there are certain things that we need to take very seriously. And when it comes to God's word, that's one of those. Because it is true. Enlightening the eyes and shedding light on the way that we should go about living. A seven-year-old asked me this morning, shortly before services started, what are you teaching about this morning? What are you preaching about? And I had to respond honestly with the subject that we're talking about this morning is not one that is pleasant, because hell is not pleasant. Hell is not fun. But it is my responsibility, I believe, to teach on the subject because it is real. But I want to talk about it a little bit differently this morning than maybe you have thought about before. And I actually remember, probably when I was about seven years old, hearing someone talk about the benefits of hell. And I remembered that sermon and then decided to create some ideas based off of it in our study this morning. As I was thinking about this particular study and as I was thinking about someone asking me what I was preaching about, I was thinking about 2 Timothy chapter 4, which has nothing to do with hell, but it has everything to do with why we talk about hell. And that is where Paul says to a, a younger man, to whom he's giving advice and giving counsel. He says, I want you to preach the word and be ready in season and out of season to convince, to rebuke, to exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. Elsewhere, declare the whole counsel of God is a responsibility of not just those who stand in a pulpit, but it is ultimately the responsibility of each of us that we share the message of God's grace as well as his determination to destroy those who are evil from his presence in an eternity of hell. I want us to start this morning with the concept that hell is a reality. And I say that because you may be familiar with the fact, or maybe you are not, that some religious groups and some churches that are in existence as of this morning would not teach in the reality of hell, but rather that heaven is a reality, but that when life comes to an end for those who are unfaithful, for the worst of the worst, the fancy word is annihilationism, the idea that we just cease to exist. And that would be certainly convenient to teach and sound better in a world that doesn't like to have judgment cast upon them But that's not what the scriptures teach because the Bible is indeed clear on countless occasions, where it be Jesus or whether it be John or whether it be another writer talking about the reality of hell. In fact, I find it interesting that in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 29, very early in the Sermon on the Mountaintop, which is not only the longest recorded sermon of Jesus, but it is also the first recorded sermon of Jesus that he talks a great deal about hell. And he says, for example, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, 
For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. By some accounts, if you go back and you count the usages of the words heaven and hell and references to them, Jesus talks more often on the subject of hell than he does on the subject of heaven. And some would say, well, that's not a very popular message to teach. But going back to a sermon that David presented just a couple of weeks ago, we are not in the business of only sharing those things which scratch the itches of the ears of those who want to hear things that are pleasant. Only tell us things that are pleasant. I'm here today to tell you something that you already appreciate and that you already know. But in the hopes of helping those who may be wavering in their faith, for those who may yet to become Christians, that hell is real, hell is eternal, and hell is miserable. And it is not something that anybody wants to experience. We sometimes use that phrase, I wouldn't want my worst enemy to go through that. I don't think any of us would want our worst enemy to experience a day in hell, let alone an eternity there. In Luke chapter 12, in verse 5, we find there in Luke's account of the gospel, he says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I tell you, or I show you whom you should fear, Jesus says. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, as Hebrews chapter 10 tells us. And we need to appreciate and understand and adopt the fact that hell is real. You know, we can't just read the first four or five verses of Revelation chapter 21, which was our scripture reading this morning, which talk about that there's going to be wiping away of tears and a beautiful place to live and a wonderful place where we are reunited with our God for all of eternity. And then not read those last couple of verses that talk about that lake that burns with fire and sulfur or fire and brimstone a place reserved for those who are unbelieving, those who are unfaithful, those who are unworthy. But I want to stop today and pause and present that while hell is real and hell is horrible and hell is eternal, you could make the argument that there are some benefits to hell, that there are some things that aren't so bad about hell. I want to share with you a half a dozen things this morning and spend just a couple of moments on each of those things. Let me suggest number one, and I know that I'm talking to a group of people who largely would say, well, I agree with that, and I don't have a problem with that. But there are people who are present here this morning who are not Christians, and it could be that there are those of us who are maybe not as strong in our faith as we need to be, and it could be that there are those who are listening or those who are watching somewhere else in the world that have yet to name the name of Jesus and have said that hell is either not real or hell is not a big deal. Let me suggest, number one, that a benefit to hell 
is if you don't like going to church. And I put that in quotes. We use that phrase sometimes loosely, the idea of I'm going to go to church, or I'm going to go to church services, go to worship services. But uh, let's understand that by definition, there really isn't church in heaven. Uh, we understand that in uh, the book of Acts and in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 and in other passages, the idea of being called out of, there's no world once we live in heaven because the former things have passed away as is written by 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. But I would argue uh, and make the point that the same is true when it comes to, to hell. That because there's no church in heaven, there's no church in hell. There's no need to go and worship and live right and to be around other Christians. And the need or the urging to attend church services is truly a moot point in hell. We're familiar with passages like Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, where we find where Christians or individuals were first called Christians at Antioch there and later in the chapter. But in chapter 20 and verse 7, we find the biblical authority that we talk about so often for coming together on the first day of the week. The disciples came forth, came together to break bread, and then Paul expounded the message and taught them until midnight on that occasion. And so that's why we come together on occasions like this on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, and we come together for church services. And how many sermons have we heard? How many times have we read in Hebrews chapter 10 where it says, Do not forsake the assembling of ourselves as is the manner or the habit of some, but rather provoke one another unto love and good works when you come together as you see that day approaching that we do this as often as we can. The fact of the matter is, is we understand that church services, church worship, the idea of worshiping our God, that these are all important things. And we do it on a routine, regular basis because that's the tradition that was set forward some 2,000 years ago. But have you ever thought, and chances are, we've all been guilty of it, especially when we were a little bit younger, well, got to go to church today. Well, got to go be with those other Christians. And as a result, you have this sense of angst or disappointment that Sunday is approaching. Now, I understand that's not the, the, the wherewithal that most of us are approaching things today because we are spiritually mature and because we care about spiritual things. But if you say, you know what, sometimes church is just a bothersome to me, you won't have to worry about it in hell. Because if you view church as a burden or something you have to do, hell might appeal to you. Because you won't ever have to go to a church service and worship God. Speaking of worshiping God, that brings me to a second thing. There's no such thing as boring worship. Heaven is described as a scene of really incredible and meaningful worship. We can spend the rest of our time just describing it and talking about that and meditating on that. But let me just share with you two passages, again, from the book of Revelation. One in Revelation 19, and then we'll go back to Revelation chapter 4 to a text that we looked at just a few months ago. But in Revelation chapter 19, 
in verse 6, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude of many people, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings. We've seen both of those things in the last couple of days, right? Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to sing number 13? <laughs> Alleluia, when we are in heaven. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to sing those great songs of praise to God? I've always wondered what it's going to be like to sing the new song when we get to the place where the new song is sang. <laughs> I don't know. I'm looking forward to it. However it sounds today, and this is a congregation, as I was describing to a lady just a couple of days ago, as I was talking to her about Northfield Boulevard, inviting her to come be with us, I said, you know, we have sing. She was, she was reluctant because she said, I don't sing very well. So you, you, you'll be fine. <laughs> because we have people that sing so great, and we sing out, and we're excited about it. You won't have to worry about it at all. But the fact is, is the singing in heaven will be more beautiful than at Northfield Boulevard or any other place that you've ever worshipped. Because God is there, and we will be there with him. Furthermore, if you back up to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8, you find that incredible scene where the four living creatures, each having those six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they did not cease or rest day or night. And they said, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Drop down to verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you, Lord, created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Singing, praying, partaking of the Lord's Supper, giving of our means, communing with one another as we do on the Lord's Day, are all absent in hell because God is absent in hell. We've all been, if you've lived more than 30, 40, 50, 60 years, if you've lived long enough, maybe you've heard a song that was pitched just a little bit too low or a little bit too high. Not here. People do a really good job of pitching. Sometimes you hear a Bible class that just is a little frustrating sometimes. Not here. And certainly sometimes you hear preaching that's a little bit dull. Definitely not here. <laughs> but we've all had those occasions where the worship was a little bit rough because things were a little bit off. And that's okay. You know what? You won't have to worry about that in hell. You won't have to deal with a boring worship service. You won't have to deal with a long sermon. You won't have to deal with a, a Bible class that just doesn't interest you. You won't have songs that are poorly pitched. You won't have to deal with any of that in hell. So the fact of the matter is, is if you think about worship as being a boring thing or something uh, that is dreadful, you won't have to worry about it in hell. Hell might appeal to you because there's no such thing as the church and there's no such thing as boring worship in church or in hell. Thirdly, there's no family pressure to live right. We have members of the church right now who are anxious about their children, about their parents, about their siblings living correctly. 
and they're writing notes, they're making calls, they're praying diligently, they're living their lives in a way to try to encourage those who are wrong to come back and to live right. The fact is, is while we are on earth, we as saints who have family members have certain obligations, not only to our physical family, but certainly to our spiritual family. For example, in the book of Deuteronomy, all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see where there are responsibilities that are outlined by God via Moses. And in chapter 6, he says, These things I command you today shall be in your heart, that you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as the sign of your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Some of that was the focus of the bulletin article this morning. But Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. And he says in those verses, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is, the first, which is this commandment. Remember what was written in 1 Samuel chapter, 13, or chapter 3 and verse 13? It's kind of a haunting verse for parents, a haunting verse for all of us who are trying to influence others where it says, I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile. And the last part of that phrase is, he did not restrain them. So whether that be fathers and their children, mothers and their children, whether that be one brother to another sister or one sister to another brother, we have this incredible responsibility to train each other, to teach each other, and yes, from time to time to correct one another, as we'll talk about in just a couple of minutes. But there will be no family pressure in, in hell. There won't be anybody calling you saying, we didn't see you at church services today. There won't be anybody saying, why are you not studying your Bible as much as you should be? In hell, there are no parental warnings, no family admonishments, no elders calling you. No deacons checking in on you. No work group leader checking on you to see if you need something. That won't be the case. Because if you are bothered by parents or others trying to get you to live right, hell might appeal to you. Number four, let me suggest that a benefit of hell is that there's no such thing as a Christian, quote, fun spoiler. Because we all know that... Uh, the world views Christianity as being not so fun. I remember Brother Michael's talking about this just two weeks ago where uh, an individual who became a Christian says, I see now that you can be a Christian and you can still enjoy life. In fact, we would make the argument, and I think that we can attest to the fact that being Christians makes it so that we enjoy life a whole lot more because our perspective has changed. The fact is, is we as saints, not just husbands and wives and fathers and sons and daughters and children, we all have responsibilities toward others. I want to look at two passages in the New Testament that you are likely familiar with. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, for me, is a very sad passage. Uh, and the reason that it's sad is because uh, growing up, whenever uh, someone was disciplined, marked, 
this was one of those go-to verses. I'm not saying that that was a bad thing. It was a very needful thing in any congregation of any size. But it always made me sad when these verses were brought up because of what they were saying. But in chapter 3 and verse 14, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet, he says, do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And we understand what this verse is saying. It's saying that if you've got someone who is in error and he or she is refusing to change the way that they're living and they're refusing to to mold themselves back to the pattern of Jesus Christ and to what a saint should be, mark that person as is talked about in elsewhere in, in the book of Romans, for example. And in James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, those last two verses of James' epistle, he says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You know, the fact is, is some Christians are bothered Even they might go as far as to say, you have offended me that you would correct me for my sinful action. And let's be honest, no one likes being corrected. And generally speaking, we don't like giving correction. We don't want to be the person to pick up the phone or to say, can you meet me so we can talk for a few moments I want to share with you some things that you're doing wrong. That is not a pleasant conversation to to, uh, initiate or to receive. But we need it, do we not? We need that kind of counsel from one another, which comes from God's word. And I put up there that you can reference Acts 8, verses 20 through 22. Remember what happened with Simon the sorcerer when he attempted to purchase the power of healing That was reserved for the apostles and those spiritually gifted individuals. We need to understand that if you think it's not the place of others to warn you or to to correct you, that they're spoiling your fun, hell might appeal to you. There's a benefit of hell. No one's going to be there saying, hey, stop doing wrong. Get back to doing what's right. That will not happen in hell. Because you won't have to worry about that in hell. On the same note, number five, there's no need to change. No need to repent. No need to improve when you are in hell. You can go on living however you want for as long as you want. And no one's going to try to change you. Because you're stuck. We as saints spend our entire spiritual lives if you stop and think about it, considering ways to improve. This takes us back to our study in 1 Corinthians and our recent study in 2 Corinthians. In fact, we talked about it just today. In Paul's letter late in uh, his first recorded letter, he says, let a man examine himself even while partaking of the Lord's Supper to see whether or not he is in the faith. Brian talked about it this morning that in the closing paragraph of Paul's letter, he says, examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. 
Do you not know that you yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? And one of the points that was made is that this flies in the face of the concept of once saved, always saved. And we may have individuals who are listening today or who are present today who say, you know what, I, I was saved 15 years ago when I became a Christian. Therefore, I no longer have anything to fear. Paul himself would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, I discipline myself, I test myself, I govern myself so that I don't become disqualified. And so we need to appreciate the fact that even great Christians, whether they be people who are alive in the 21st century or even great Christians like Paul, had to continually work at improving themselves. In Romans chapter 7, verse 19, Paul wrote the following to the church at Rome. And he said in Romans chapter 7, verse 19, he says to the citizens and to the saints who were living in Rome and struggling there and going through the challenges there, he says, for the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. He's saying, I know what's right to do, but I don't do it. And I know that it's wrong to do it, but I do it. He says, I just struggle to live what is right. And again, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. It was Paul who himself wrote to Timothy, and he says, I am the chiefest or the number one of sinners. And he understood the need to make changes and to improve. And most of us don't like change. And we especially do not like when someone else is telling us to make the changes for the better. And if that's you, and you truly believe that, and you want to spend eternity without having to make any sort of changes in your life, no reflection, then hell might appeal to you because there'll be no need for it. And number six, and finally, there's no need to suffer for doing right. I mean, it's tough sometimes being a Christian when people ridicule you, when you do not get the job promotion because you're not drinking with the boss, because you don't get ahead, because you don't share the same kinds of filthy stories with others. It sometimes is difficult being a faithful child of God because of everything that's going on around us. And among the tough things about being a saint or being one of God's children is the fact that I put up there, there's a near guarantee. Probably go ahead and strike out the word near because there is a guarantee or as, they, as, a, as R.C. would say in Kentucky, he would say there's a guarantee that there is going to be a cost associated with our choice to serve the Lord. I've said many times before that if you want the easy life where you don't have a lot of uh, choices in terms of doing right and wrong and you can just kind of live for yourself and live for the moment, then being a Christian is probably not for you. But the fact is, is being a Christian is necessary because even in spite of the choice and the cost that comes with it, it is well worth it. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and he says that indeed all who desire to live godly not might suffer persecution, not will perhaps suffer persecution, but indeed will suffer persecution. 
in 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happens to you or happened to you. But rejoice, actually be happy to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. That is a perspective that is difficult for us to really understand until you understand it. And simply what I mean by that is we have to become Christians, mold ourselves to be more like Jesus Christ, and to understand that the cost that are born in this life as a result of living righteously pale in comparison to hell, which is eternal. The fact is, is hell is a place that is completely free of difficulties that come because you chose to do what is right. Not saying that hell is a place that is free from difficulties, but you have that experience on earth where you say, it's just not fair. <laughs> it's not fair that I'm suffering. Here I am, I'm, I'm, I'm reading my Bible, I'm going to church services, I am being as faithful as I know how to be, and everything seems to be falling apart in my life, in my house, in my job. But you won't have that kind of suffering that happens in hell. It'll be suffering that just happens every day, but it will be because you've done what is wrong. So if you don't want to give up stuff or suffer for righteousness' sake, hell might appeal to you. Now, all that being said, let me conclude and come back to where we began, and that is the reality, that in reality, hell is real. And if you are not convinced that hell is real, spend more time reading the New Testament and read about where in Luke chapter 12 and verses 4 and 5 where Jesus himself says, don't be afraid of someone who can take away your life on this earth. You know, I was thinking about this Thursday evening after our men's study I was actually on a call with a Philippine study, which had to end quickly. <laughs> so as I'm sitting in the laundry room with my wife, two cats, one dog, helmet on, there's a picture of it floating around. If that picture gets published, I'm coming after you. But I remember watching the news that evening, and I remember them saying, okay, now, the tornado is going to come here, it's going to come here, it's going to come here. And I'm, and I'm not uh, diminishing that it was a real threat and real people got hurt. Maybe not so much here in Tennessee, but certainly in, to our southern neighbors, right? And she, I remember the newscaster, she kept saying, now, we don't want you to worry. We don't want you to panic. We just want you to be prepared. And my thought immediately, because I knew what I was preaching about this morning, went to hell. Because you can't say, don't be afraid of hell, just be prepared. I mean, you can, but you have to really be fearful of hell because in reality, it's real. And how many people have been led to believe that hell is not real or that God, a loving God, would not send you there? 
because that's not the case at all. No one, I would argue, and I think you would agree with me, would ever say that hell is something that appeals to him or her. But do your actions or does your attitude say something different? And all of us at various points in our lives have probably had attitudes or have acted in a way where we have kind of thumbed our nose at God or flaunted the idea that God's not going to send me to hell based on the way that I live. And the last question is, is the choice that you fail to make today, does it indicate that hell appeals to you? Because if you're not a Christian and you say, well, I'm not going to become a Christian today, knowing full well you need to make that change and you and, and repent and confess Jesus as the Christ and be baptized. If you don't do those things and you know you need to do those things, then what you are in some ways advertising to the world is that hell must have an appeal to you because that's where you'll end up. And some would say, preacher, that's not the most uplifting sermon I've ever heard. It's not the most uplifting sermon I've ever preached. But I firmly believe it is my responsibility, and I think we all agree, it is our responsibility to share the truth. I'd rather someone be a little bit afraid in this life and say, you know what, I don't want to go to hell. I want to do what God wants me to do so I can go to heaven and get over that in this life than to experience it in the next life. Or to put it another way, I'd rather someone offend me or bother me in this life rather than me be offended for eternity because really there are no benefits to hell. After all that being said, there's no benefit. It's not worth it. And we hope that this morning that you'll make the change that is necessary. And chances are all of us can take opportunity to make some sort of a change for the better because we are not perfect men and women And there are areas for us to improve and to make the appropriate changes. And many of those changes are private in the way that we think, in the way that we talk, in the way that we study, in the way that we pray. Let us make those changes. But if those are changes that are public in nature, where you need to make a public confession of sin, or perhaps you need to become a Christian today, We would welcome the opportunity for you to be baptized, to have those sins washed away. Hell is real. Hell is eternal. And hell is miserable. And you don't want it. And we don't want it for you. And we want to help you if we can. Let us know while together we stand and while we sing.